what art can bring to the conservation movement is, I think art can transcend boundaries. The beauty of art and design is you can reach a global audience and, and share a universal message with all ages and all nationalities, all cultures, and in a way that maybe film or a book, a written book, might not be able to. To the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Conservation Tribe. Today we are joined by Ed Harrison, designer, illustrator, conservationist, and co-founder of Under the Skin. Ed, cheers for coming on for a chat. Hey, how you doing, Blaine? And uh, thanks for the intro, making me feel pretty, uh, pretty professional right now. <laughs> so today's podcast, we're going to chat a bit about art. We're going to chat a bit about conservation, but specifically, I guess, where those two worlds overlap and what that kind of space looks like and what that space means to you as a conservation artist, if you will. So before we get stuck into that, can you please introduce yourself to the podcast? Okay, great. Well, um, yeah, the intro is pretty on point, actually, Blaine. So I'm Ed Harrison. I'm a designer and illustrator with a focus on wildlife and conservation. And I'm based in Wales. And as you mentioned, I'm co-founder of Under the Skin, which I started with my brother, James who's a designer and printmaker. And um, that's sort of a creative entity which brings together our crafts to raise awareness of endangered species. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my passionate <laughs> intro. In a, in a nutshell. All right, so you mentioned Under the Skin. So you're the co-founder of that with your bro. Can you expand on, I guess, what Under the Skin is and perhaps give a bit of a backstory around how that project started? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess it's, it's a project that's definitely been evolving over the five years since we started it. But Under the Skin began, in a, in a nutshell, to, to sort of paint a picture to someone who hasn't seen it or come across it. It's a, a print series of endangered animals, which I illustrate in a geometric and minimal and playful style. So it uses bright, bold colors. And it's essentially um, a collection. So it's almost like we wanted to make it feel like uh, the collection was a collectible, almost take an influence from like playing cards or, you know, I think there's something innate in humans that, that makes us want to collect things, you know? And so we're definitely drawing on that, that, that influence. And um, so my style lends itself very beautifully to the traditional hand printed process of screen printing, which is what my brother does, which is when you print the layers of the artwork color by color, layer by layer, almost making up an image by a stencil. And James is sort of meticulous and um, perfectionist in him means that, yeah, it just, it, it's just the medium. It just works so, so nicely with, with my style. And the unique thing about our prints and sort of like the underlying concept of Under the Skin is that they are interactive. So we finish all of the endangered animal prints with UV ink, which is a hidden phosphorescent layer that you can't see on the top. And under UV light, the skeleton of the animals are revealed. 
And this skeleton is anatomically correct. And so it contrasts the bold, minimal, geometric illustration sitting below. And I think that's what lends itself really nicely to the concept because it sort of engages the viewer and it's sort of playful, but it's got that serious underlying message, which is a metaphor for extinction. And then with each of the prints we create in limited edition runs of 40, we donate 20% to a species-specific charity that's, that's working on the ground, on the front lines, working to protect that species. And so, you know, our customers feel like they're making a direct um, contribution to the protection of the animal that they buy. So that, that's how Under the Skin began, but it's been growing since we started it. Constantly changing. Um, but just quickly on the Under the Skin, it's quite a unique name. Is there a reason for choosing those specific words? So when we started it in, in 2015, we didn't really have a name. We launched with four animals as a sort of side project. And, you know, back then we never thought that it would have turned into the life venture that it has for me and my brother today. So, you know, when, when we realized that we were onto something with the project, we wanted to come up with a name for our collaboration and, and our print series. I guess, um, oh, and just for the record, in 2015, that was... <laughs> before Under the Skin podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> we probably would have chosen a different name had it been uh, after that podcast had come out. Um, so you're not collaborating with Russell Brand? Unfortunately oh. not, although many people have suggested we, we, we could. <laughs> so if, if Russell Brand's listening, you know. Oh, yeah, he's one of, he's one of my main listeners. Yeah, he's definitely subscribed. <laughs> <Not his> yeah. <laughs> So I guess under the skin is um, obviously it translates to the concept of the UV effect of our prints, but also I guess under the skin, we're I think alongside being artists, we definitely see ourselves as storytellers. And I think what we're as we're evolving, we're dif- we're using different mediums to tell the stories of these species, and I think it's quite a fitting name for getting. Like, all of these stories about these animals are quite complex, you know, there's a, there's usually a human side to, to every conservation story, as you know. And so we, we want to use our project as a platform for surfacing these stories. And so I guess the name is a, an all-encompassing sort of um, metaphor for both the artwork and also the stories that we're trying to uncover through our project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've touched on it before, but what is your strategy to... I guess, combine the worlds of art and conservation? So I'd say we're looking at our artwork is a visual metaphor for everything that we do. So primarily we want everything to be a celebration of these amazing animals and and the, and the, the wonders of the natural world that we have. And I think, you know, if we're trying to engage people, the masses in you know, a topic that's as heavy as the sixth mass extinction, it's so much easier to engage someone if you're able to primarily draw them in with a positive message and, you know, get them intrigued, get them curious. And I think then you can then spark a conversation from that point. So so everything we do, we want it to be playful and bold and positive. And then underneath, we want a serious understory because there's an amazing quote by Elizabeth Colbert of this the book The Sixth Mass Extinction. Guilt and fear are less effective calls to arms than a love and wonder of the natural world. Preaching. And I think for us, you know, that really resonates with us. I think, you know, we can see it in 
the people that we engage with, you know, whether we're doing a pop-up workshop or we're creating a film or we're using social media, I think the beauty and the playfulness and the boldness needs to come first and then the messages can follow. Yeah, I agree. It seems to be a theme that is coming up more and more as well, this idea of conservation optimism. Because like you said, when you're talking about the sixth mass extinction, that is heavy stuff. And it can be quite tricky communicating that in a way that's not bloody depressing. But it is important to communicate it in a way that actually moves on to the next step. Because if you're too too heavy, too full on, at least for a lot of people, the conversation ends there. But I always ask myself the question when you talk about optimism and I guess the harsh reality, what is that ratio? What percentage of communication should be optimistic and what percentage should be that kind of the harsh reality? This is just what it is. Like in my mind, it's it's definitely the majority should be probably optimistic because most people respond that way. They, they respond well to that. But there's some people that need to hear just the the guts of it, just the truth, just straight up the truth. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd say um, it's something we're asking ourselves constantly. And I'd say it primarily depends on your audience, right? So so if, if, if you're talking to, if you're talking to a young audience of school kids, then your message and your ratio is going to be different to if you're giving a conference to a group of conservationists who are already engaged in what's going on. And I think that's what's really interesting is we've, to use an example, David Attenborough has probably been someone who's changed that ratio drastically in the last five years. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine now what planet Earth was like before he started focusing on the ocean plastics and the climate um, crisis. But, you know, there were, there were people like George Monbiot, um, who's a writer for The Guardian, who was actually calling him out and saying before he'd sort of started bringing in the first one was the ocean was in the blue planet actually with his ocean plastic that exploded and i think it brought obviously there are a lot of people who are already bringing plastic pollution to the forefront of the mass media but i think seeing david attenborough's blue planet where he just chose one message to hit home but obviously the first three quarters of that show and actually the whole of his career had been focusing on celebrating the natural world and then he chose that episode to focus on one issue and and then we saw the impact of that. And now if we look at some of Attenborough's stuff, it's, <laughs> it's nearly the ratio has gone like the other way, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's actually really interesting. It'd be kind of good to look through his various documentaries over time and comparing, I guess, the message in each of these and how that has changed over time in terms of that relationship between optimism versus harsh realities, how that has changed over time. Because... Yeah, it is a bit of an art form because when you're dealing with a documentary like Planet Earth that everyone sees pretty much, you want it to be entertaining enough so that everyone sees it, but then you want to sprinkle in some some bits of information that can inspire people to make a positive change. And so that is that is the challenge. That is the challenge as as creators and artists and designers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. You want to empower you want to empower people and not make people feel like the situation is hopeless. Okay, so that's a particular example with David Attenborough. That's talking about documentaries. But when we're talking about art and design, that covers many different mediums. But when we talk of it broadly, including all the artists, all the designers, what role do artists and designers have in protecting the natural world? 
I'd say what art can bring to the conservation movement is, I think art can transcend boundaries. The beauty of art and design is you can reach a global audience and, and share a universal message with all ages and all nationalities, all cultures, and in a way that maybe film or a book, a written book, might not be able to. And I, I love watching different age groups interact with our artwork. You know, the young kids, for example, you know, toddlers up like down to the age of four, give them one of our UV flashlights and they'll, you know, go around exploring the prints. And I remember um, my girlfriend used to be a nanny and she had a four-year-old boy and we gave him um, the UV torch to sort of explore our prints. And he went up to the orangutan and he, you could see he was just fascinated by turning the torch on and off. And he kept saying, he kept saying, Julia, Julia, the orangutan is dead. We hadn't, we hadn't told him the concept. We hadn't told him anything. He said, the orangutan's dead when the torch is on and he turned it off and he said it was alive. So at the age of four, without having to say a word to him, he understood that skeleton was sort of reflective of the concept of death. And so from there, we could sort of sit him down and explain to him like, well, you know, yeah, well, do you know why the orangutan is dying? And then, you know, from there, it was sort of a gateway into a conversation about, you know, not, and it wasn't a heavy one because he was only four, but, you know, you can start bringing in those conversations. So I think that is what I would say for me personally, like the beauty of art and design is it, it, all age groups, all cultures, you know, it's, it's all encompassing and you can sort of resonate with people on another level. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's it's a communication thing to me. So like science is obviously super integral to conservation, but another very important thing is how we package that science. Like it needs to be packaged in a way that is actually digestible to the everyday person. So that means presenting it, communicating it in a way where people actually want to consume the science in the first place. And so I think this is where the artists and the designers come into play because they come in here with their magic, they come in here with their creative superpowers, and they take this science, they work their magic, make it pretty, they make it enticing, they make it engaging, and then everyone else can consume it. So they're like the bridge between the scientists and the general public. So from my perspective, like that's, I think, the, a role that artists and designers play is kind of that science conservation communication role. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I think you absolutely nailed it. That's it. <laughs> and uh, I think the challenge as a designer is sort of taking these stories and it's what, you know, gets us out of bed every morning. It's like, how, how can you communicate these stories? What mediums do you have to offer? And, and, you know, that's where with Under the Skin, you know, that's why I said it started out as the art collection. But, you know, we're trying to embrace all of these different mediums. There's so many different mediums that you can use to communicate these messages. And, you know, and, and with the interconnectivity of our world today, there are so many tools at our disposal that can enable us to communicate these stories, as you said, like that otherwise people might just not engage in it. And so as a designer, our role, that is our role. And, you know, I, I do have a background in the commercial work before I went into conservation. So I think this idea that artists and designers can, I think, I think they have a responsibility. It sounds a bit cheesy, but when you say great power comes with great responsibility, you know, but it's true. And you could, you could be out there marketing shoes for Nike or, you know, because that's all the same. That's all like, yeah, no, you, know, it totally is. you know, telling these stories in enticing ways, but more than ever, we need these designers and visual communicators to be engaging people and 
relevant messages and, and things that truly matter. Do you think anyone can be an artist? I mean, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I think a lot of people put up these boundaries like, this is not for me, but in reality, perhaps it is. Everyone's creative. Everyone's creative, even though it might not be the stereotypical definition of art, you know, someone might not be the best life drawer or um, might not be the best at oil painting or I think everyone's got a creative spark within them and it's how you channel that, whether it's cooking or music or writing, you know, I see that as an art form, you're sort of painting pictures with words. So, and also it's, it's about, I think creativity is bringing together different ideas that, that that is what essentially creativity is. So your friends who are experimenting with drawing on an iPad might also be doing something else over here where they're researching snails in a pond and suddenly they've created something unique that no one's ever thought of before. And so to anyone who's thinking about, um, you know, like you said, putting themselves in boxes or, or I think I think part of the creative process is being free and not being afraid to make mistakes. And that's where coming back to our childhood, children aren't afraid to draw. Mm-hmm. And it's about growing up as adults, we sort of get restricted and we tighten up and we get put into boxes. And Such this is shame, what we're trying to do. Yeah, it is. And this is what we're trying to do through Under the Skin as well. This is why everything we want to do is just like, is playful and simple and bold and just having fun. We want to spark the curiosity that we all had as children and keep that curiosity alive. And I think that curiosity can be channeled into things like art and being creative, but it can also be you know, that it can be the little boy or girl upturning a stone and looking at the, the worms or, you know, the, the wood lice that are underneath. And I think that natural curiosity we have as humans, as children, is almost the key to everything, really. And, and if we can, you know, go back to that curiosity and that appreciation for the natural world and creating, I think we'll be making progress as a species. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like we need to, I agree, um, humans, adults, it seems like we something happens, whether it's high school or growing up, getting a job. We have this criteria that supposedly we have to live by. And throughout that process, a lot of us tend to lose that kind of innate curiosity. And I think that curiosity is integral to solving a lot of these problems. It's something that we're born with. We have it as a child and we kind of lose it. But if we manage to still hold on to some of that curiosity as an adult, and then we match that curiosity with life experiences that adults have, then you can channel that in a way that perhaps is beneficial for yourself and to the planet. Like it's that combination of curiosity and experience where you can channel, channel it in a very impactful way. Um, but another thing that you're talking about with the, the artist and everyone potentially being able to be an artist, another thing that I found was Art's kind of like comes down to, you know, storytelling a lot of the time. It's expressing yourself and telling your story through whatever medium you use as as an artist. And for me, my background's, I guess, architecture, designing buildings and that kind of stuff. Um, but when I decided to move into conservation, I was like, okay, potentially the impact I could have is as some kind of communicator, but I'm not naturally a communicator. Like I'm very introverted. I think a lot, but I don't say many words. So it was kind of... a there was a lot of friction at the beginning for me trying to be a communicator. But then I I learned that there's ways to communicate. There's ways to tell a story. It doesn't have to necessarily be through writing a book or creating a a vlog on YouTube. 
it can be drawing a picture. It can be doing a meme. It could be animating. It could be photography. So the idea is there are many different ways to tell a story. There's many different ways that you can express yourself as an artist. And if you have an inclination towards protecting the planet, there's a way to kind of express that creativity to do that. Okay, so that segues to my next question. Uh (laughs) (laughs) What mediums do you use to create and design a conservation message? So I'd say with us at Under the Skin, my brother and myself, we both have a background in graphic design and James went down the more traditional hand-printed route. You know, he's always been very hands-on and he's a craftsman through and through. Whereas I took on the more, I went down the route of more digital side of things. So I've got a background in branding and web design. And so this is where I feel like our strength and under the skin lies that we're able to bring these two together in our project. And this is why we collaborate so well. So just to start off with, I'd say paper and ink. Like I said, our print series, our art collection is where it starts. So I digitally illustrate all of the animals using Adobe Illustrator. And then they are converted. James takes those illustrations and creates screens, and which is a mesh that he uses ink and a squeegee to pull pull through and print onto the paper below and so that is our so they're almost our like fundamental tools for the conservation movement like our squeegee and our ink and we use sustainable practices wherever possible so um, we're sponsored by Fedragoni our paper paper supplier who work with the World Land Trust to create their free life paper which also protects old growth forests and it's really high quality and yet it's really sustainable and responsibly sourced. All of our inks are water-based, so there's no plastic in them. James is a bit of a, (laughs) he can be a bit of a manic upcycler, so all of our print tubs are old peanut butter, peanut butter tubs. Um, (laughs) We're both, we're both vegan and we're climbers, so we go through peanut butter, you know, pretty, pretty rapidly. (laughs) And so that is to make our artwork. But Again, I love that you keep bringing things back to storytelling because for us that is so important. So when we send someone a piece of our artwork, we want to tell the story of the animal. We want to tell them the story of the handcrafted nature of the prints. And so because they're UV prints, we send every customer a torch, a UV flashlight that comes in a box. And that box holds the story. It holds the charity card where we create infographics of why the animal is endangered and where that money is going. And we have a little booklet of how the print was made, you know, to show our process, to show the sustainable process. And so essentially we want to be creating artwork that can last for generations. I think as a designer, one of the most meaningful things you can do is create something that lasts, that's not disposable, it's not thrown away. So so it's really important that people aren't just getting a print. They're also getting a story that they can cherish and they can have this this piece of artwork forever and pass it down for generations. So that's our fundamental product. But from that, you know, we it's really important if you're selling these products, you need to have a slick website and we're using our website as a platform. So we've got a journal, a blog where we get guest writers to write blog posts, engaging posts. Again, we want it to be in line with our brand. So it needs to be playful that needs to be fresh and new and engaging. And so we've got a host of amazing writers that work with us And, you know, we'll work to bring that to life visually through imagery um, and infographics. And those infographics and all that imagery gets put out onto our social media, which we've been, you know, you know more than any. This is like one of the most valuable tools to any anyone nowadays, the interconnected nature of social media is you can reach a global audience. Obviously, you have to cut through the noise. 
and you have to use it smart. But we've been working with a, a girl called Amy Hudson, who's been amazing at helping us sort of with our social media strategy, just to get it really concise. And, you know, we had definitely definitely not professionals at social media <laughs> she's she's getting us she's just about to bridge us onto using our stories more um <laughs> just because we you know we we just it, that stuff this doesn't come naturally to us so i think it's okay we're we're very i think we're very comfortable in you know staying true to what we do and very comfortable with collaborating with other people who can bring their skill sets to the project because there's so many other passionate creatives that we're fortunate enough to be collaborating with in our project um and reaching people you know and so um you know one of the highlights for us <laughs> last month we got um leonardo dicaprio actually shared one of our social media posts and we got oh, a phone really? call from amy just yeah yeah Dang, and amy high five. Ran, that was good. yeah <laughs> it, was it was one of our infographics on the pangolin and yeah that was kind of a massive like everyone on the team were just like going crazy like Leonardo DiCaprio just shared you <laughs> shared those. So wow, yeah, that's cool. I don't know, it, yeah, it was cool. And again, that's you know, you see the reach that that infographic that we created about the critically endangered pangolin. It got such a wide reach, and so you know that just shows how much impact you can see the metrics. And then what we're starting to do now is more events. So obviously the nature of our work is we want to get it out in galleries where people can come and view it and interact with it and learn about the animals. And for the first time, we've been um, starting to do pop-up print workshops in the space. So we're inviting the public to come along and bring their old T-shirts and tote bags and get screen printing themselves. You know, it's an amazing way of getting people to print environmental messages onto their clothing like you know about rewilding about ocean conservation and you know you're having animals on there so kids are learning about the animals and what's more when we did it in our last event which is literally just before every, everyone went into shutdown lockdown for the global pandemic is we were right next to a load of charity shops so people were coming in and wanting to get screen printing but they were like, could we buy a T-shirt? And we just said, like, there's so many charity shops out there. So, you know, not only are we getting people to be printing environmental messages, we're also getting them to learn about how easy and accessible secondhand clothes are and they're able to breathe new life into these old garments. And then you can open up a conversation about the fashion industry and the textile industry and how damaging that is to the planet. And so that was really unexpected. We did it as a little pop-up workshop in our event. But... This has now become a new arm to our brand. You know, the engagement that we got was overwhelming. And not only that, but you're also engaging kids in art and conservation, but you're also adding context to our artwork. And they're printing one layer on a garment. And <laughs> our prints, James is printing 17 layers, yeah. like millimeter perfect. And so there's also an added appreciation to the artwork showing that it's not digitally printed. It's hand printed by James, who's super, super talented at what he does, you know, really amazing. And then finally, our final, and I think one of the most powerful storytelling mediums out there is film. And we've been working with some filmmakers, Luke Ripley and Max Smith to start telling stories of the print process, again, so that people know that these prints are sustainably crafted by hand. They're not just being digitally printed out of a machine. And we're, for the first time, we're now starting to work with these filmmakers, not only to tell the story of our process, but ultimately our vision is to tell the story of our process, how the print is made, and then go to the front lines of conservation and sh tell the stories of these 
conservationists and charities, which will then show where the money is going. Okay. So to to roll on the um, the film part a little bit more, can you speak about the recent documentary that you've been working on with Sea Shepherd? Yes, I can. So we say recent. Um, we've been working on this <laughs> for like two and a half years now, but you're right. It's 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 definitely feeling very recent at the moment because it's kind of an all-consuming project, which is definitely a test of patience and resilience, you know, just chipping away at it because we're not documentary filmmakers and this is our first ever documentary that we're making, but it's a super exciting process. And so about two and a half years ago, Sea Shepherd actually contacted us to make a print in line with their 40th anniversary of their Ocean Conservation Society sort of saving our seas. And so they said that if we were to print, obviously we were like, uh, yeah, yeah, well, we can work with you. We <laughs> check my schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so they said that if we were going to do any any animal, we had to kickstart our, our collaboration with them with a the vaquita porpoise. And James and I were sort of like, what's a vaquita porpoise? And then we started looking into it. And it's actually the pretty much one of the most endangered sea creatures in the world. It's the smallest species of porpoise. And there's a crazy sad story of its, its decimation out in Mexico, where it's basically... Um, the Mexican cartel are destroying a whole wealth of species out there. And there's a complex story that's all linked to do with the wildlife trade and greed and loss. And so we were invited out to the vessel to see firsthand what was happening. And so we went with our filmmaker, Max Smith, and we were invited on board the vessel in the Sea of Cortez, Mexico. And we spent a week dipping in on and off the vessel, just sort of immersing ourselves in the story. And basically, it's a super complex story, but it all comes down to this other fish called the Totoaba bass, which is getting, it's getting decimated by the Mexican cartel and the local poachers who are laying gill nets. And gill nets, uh, they are referred to by the sea shepherd as walls of death because they're just invisible they get almost like they get everything exactly and they just suffocate it and so the reason that Mexican cartel and the poachers are going after this totoaba bass is that its swim bladder can go for 50 to 100,000 dollars on the Chinese black market for the super rich where it's a sign of wealth and i think they they think it's got these magical healing properties and so they're not actually targeting the vaquita the vaquita is roughly the same size as this totoaba bass and so it's also getting caught up on these nets. And so Sea Shepherd, what they're doing is tirelessly playing this cat and mouse game to retrieve these nets that are being laid down by the poachers and they're pulling them up. And every single animal that they, they, they that is pulled up, they, they set free. And so we weren't just there on board with them. We were, we had a few days actually getting our own hands dirty and pulling the nets and it's, physically tiring and it's draining and you know you work until two in the morning pulling up these nets and you know it was we were out there and there was military on board with guns you know just because the, the vessel has been attacked by the Mexican cartel in the past by Molotov cocktails there's been gunshots at the vessel so we were lucky enough not to see any action but um we it still felt real felt very real you know you're standing <laughs> on a vessel next to a guy with a machine gun whilst seeing the poachers on the GPS tracker where they're um, using sonar to locate the different vessels as well as the nets. It was a pretty crazy story. So like I said, we were accompanied by our filmmaker because um, we wanted to tell the story, but 
what was more an unexpected sort of turn to our documentary that we learned when we were out there is that, which is something we've already touched upon in this sort of podcast already, is the idea that anyone could be a conservationist. And so when we got to know the Sea Shepherd crew and we got to learn their stories from before they were joining the Sea Shepherd conservation movement, you know, there was an engineer on board who used to work on a tuna trawling vessel. The captain used to be the captain of a cargo ship. And, you know, there was a chef on board, there was a medic on board, and all of these conservationists were just using skills that are very sort of, when you take them outside of the realms of Sea Shepherd, they seem kind of detached from conservation, and yet they were using their time and their skills for conservation. And so for us, when making a documentary, this was an unexpected sort of bigger message that we could are going to try and interweave into our stories so that we don't finish the documentary with your classic bleak message, donate here, that's it. We felt it really important to convey a message of hope, but what's more, convey a message of empowerment so that the viewer watching it can then look inward and then think, what can they do? And not feel unempowered if they feel like they haven't studied conservation or if they're not directly connected to wildlife. I think everyone and anyone has the capacity to contribute to the conservation movement. And, you know, same as you, like we feel there's nothing really more important nowadays than protecting the natural world that is at risk. Mm. And I think that's a really important message, this idea that anyone can be a conservationist. I mean, I myself, now that I'm kind of trying to fully immerse myself in this space, there was resistance for me in the beginning because I was like, I don't feel like I was qualified to host a podcast talking about conservation yeah. because A, I don't study it, don't have a science background, I don't have any actual on the field type work. But the more I thought about it, like there are many different roles. There are many different pieces in this conservation puzzle. It's the biggest puzzle you'll ever see in your life. And science takes up a big chunk of that, but so does being a chef the chef on this boat, so is being an artist, so is being a filmmaker. There are so many different roles. So I think that's a very, I like how even creating a documentary around the vaquita porpoise, the, you know, the most endangered cetacean in the world, how you can still bring out some, some hope, some optimism, some inspiration out of that documentary, out of that story. Uh, I think that's very well done. Um, is there any information on when that's coming out? <laughs> Well, the global pandemic has certainly um, set things back a bit. Put on um, the back burner a bit. Yeah, we're um, we're on. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep we'll keep you in the loop. We're, oh, yeah. Cool, cool, it, cool. It's gonna be twenty 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 for sure. Oh, twenty twenty for sure. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one thing that I think you've talked about in previous podcasts of yours is the importance of having a strategy for launching documentaries and this is new to us so we were going to go down the route of ocean film festivals and you know we're hoping with someone like sea shepherd is launching it with them it should be a bit easier than you know but again ocean film festivals now with the um covid19 who knows what's going to be happening with that so we're going to have to you know really rethink and be smart and just be lean and 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 try and find a find a way of working around what's happening in in the wider sense of the world that's obviously being disrupted in massive ways but um yeah stay tuned stay tuned okay um i want to touch on something that you mentioned pretty much near the beginning 
You said there was a moment where you said to your brother that maybe we can do something from this or maybe maybe this is turning into something that's real. What did that moment look like? Because I, I know that can be quite a tricky thing and that's something I'm also going through is I'm waiting to find that because it can be quite scary doing something like this and you're looking for that moment where it's like, yes, maybe I am on the right track. So like, what was that moment like for you? Yeah, so I think there's no, there's never going to be one defining moment or at least in our experience there wasn't one defining moment it's a series of moments that when you look back on it all you connect the dots and then you realize that you're on the right track and so for so often enough something happens and then we think oh yeah this is it and then you know so much of the time when you think something is going to be taking off or whatever you know <laughs> it's, it's not like that yeah. you in it for the long game and so I'd say to anyone like you just keep going and sometimes you have to follow your gut instinct and follow the reaction that other people are giving you but I feel like what's similar with maybe what we're doing and what you're doing is I think the best thing that you can follow is other people are willing to contribute to what you're doing because they believe in what you're doing if people didn't believe in what you're doing they wouldn't be coming onto your podcast and sharing their knowledge with you and contributing to what you're doing and so for me that is and that's what we're getting with the the filmmakers, the musicians, the writers, the you know, the collaborators that we're working with are, are giving us their time and skills and ch- sharing their amazing talents with us. And I think that is the thing that helps you know you're on the right track. But I guess for us, our backstory in terms of when the project started in 2015, you know, for us back then, the Extinction Crisis was, wasn't in the mainstream media, you know, it was relatively untalked about. And so we were even saying the word the sixth mass extinction sounded jarring it was often met with you know blank stares or people would sort of turn off to what we were saying mm-hmm. whereas now i feel like it's a bit more mainstream and accepted in the mainstream media because it's being more talked about so you know we were going to schools and universities and we were giving talks about this stuff and just you know all of these this perfect storm of different threats that are happening around the world that are causing the environmental crisis but um we launched with four prints. That was the the African elephant, the Western gorilla, the giant panda, and the polar bear. And they're, you know, aren't, we're the same as you. We started this project not seeing ourselves as conservationists. We u- we're using this project to learn about what's going on in the world. And so starting out with these those iconic species was sort of the linchpin of our real that was even though it felt like a launch it was only the beginning and so this has been we're going to be using this project to learn about what's going on in the world and there's always going to be people who have more knowledge and I think the same as you we're using our project to primarily celebrate the work of conservationists out there in the world you know we are creatives and that is what we do that's what we do day in day out and so um that is definitely something that we want to tell people you don't have to be an expert in conservation to be contributing to the conservation movement okay so on that what is your ultimate mission and vision for under the skin our ultimate mission for under the skin our vision for where the project will be going is sort of bringing our global interactive exhibitions that we can take on tour so we're going to be bringing together these different mediums of artwork and films and workshops digital and sound and VR, where we can engage the public and people can come and explore a world of interactive 
mediums that are telling these stories of animals from around the world and you know creating a really unique experience that's where we see under the skin going but for the bigger picture we want to be ending the extinction crisis and so that means something far bigger than focusing on individual animals it's about large complex solutions that are going to be things like rewilding which we really resonate with because it's such a proactive movement it's it's not looking back and trying to hold on to what's been lost. It's, it's moving forwards in a proactive way that's regenerating habitats. And, you know, for, I think for us to truly, truly end the extinction crisis, we're going to have to take on something as massive as giving half the world nature or the organization Nature Needs Half who are, have plans in place of how you could give half the world to the natural world and protecting half the world so that the natural world can thrive and humans can live in harmony alongside nature. And so, you know, all of these problems can be quite overwhelming when you start thinking of how big and massive they are. And so I think for any conservationist, it's about looking in and looking what you can do and taking it step by step. And so for us, that begins with, you know, coming back to engaging people, getting people printing getting people to look at our artwork or sharing stories with them and starting a conversation or talking about, you know, cooking a vegan meal and talking about veganism, all, all of those little conversations that you can start and, and, you know, that effect that one person can talk to the next person can talk to the next person. And soon, you know, we live in hope that eventually there will be this global realization that the world, the natural world needs to be put at the forefront of everything else that is happening not just for its survival but for our own survival as well yeah i mean it's all interconnected and yeah i think one big step is just acknowledging how complex the problem is and how many pieces there are to this puzzle and i think the work that you guys are doing is awesome and the way that you're approaching it i think is is the way to go in terms of you know highlighting hope like kind of put, promoting these ideas of hope and, and optimism is really an important part of the equation because like you said, it's it can be daunting when we're talking about uh, these extinct species and climate change. All these things affect everyone. They affect you and I, they affect our families and friends and our future, you know, our children. And so it can be overwhelming. So we need to sprinkle in that optimism and hope in there. Otherwise, we're not we're just going to freak out and, and just be like, shit, I don't know what to do. I'm frozen. Yeah. So yeah, that, that part is yeah integral. I, I think that's great. And and I think, you know, that that's so true. And, you know, for us, when it comes, even, even when it comes to creating a piece of artwork for a species, you know, a lot of people might ask, well, you know, we, we sometimes question it, you know, cause it's not just individual species that need saving, you know, ultimately we need to be focusing on habitats, large scale, biodiversity be protected but bringing it back to the stories if you can engage someone in for example an orangutan then you can start to, to protect that orangutan you need to address problems like palm oil and you know habitat loss and so these animals or these little initial sort of steps are gateways into the the bigger picture and so i guess taking it step by step and one foot at a time really is the way to go Mm, step by step and also momentum is the thing so you know the more steps you take the better it is and like the idea that every action 
has an impact. I think we often fall into the trap of me doing this doesn't, you know, it's not going to impact the world. Um, that's a dangerous mentality because obviously if everyone adopted that mentality, nothing would get done. But every action you do has a ripple on effect. And one positive thing that you do now could mean like heaps of positivity, 10 steps down the track. Yeah, right. Like a 15-year-old a girl with, a, with a, a cardboard sign sitting outside of school, right? What better example? Oh, mate, exactly. Exactly. That into what is now like climate change or Extinction Rebellion, all these things are now everywhere. And yeah, she played a very significant part in that and all, all beginning from that. Yeah. So yeah, empowering people to, to do something and these little things can turn into big things down the track. And we just want to make sure that the little things that we're doing are as positive as we can make them. Uh, okay. How can we connect with you online? Uh, cool. Thanks for asking. So I'd say, our, um, so firstly, we have a website, which is undertheskin.co.uk, which has all of our, print, our, our whole print collection on there, as well as our journal and blog for reading, um, and a bit more about our story and showing our process to any listeners who want to sort of see the project. We use Instagram, so our handle is underscore under the skin. Couldn't get under the skin <laughs> for any of our handles. Um, same as Twitter, it goes underscore under the skin. And then we're on Facebook, Under the Skin of Endangered Animals. And like you said, we've got, um, hopefully within the year, we'll have a documentary launching. And so we'll be keeping everyone up to date with which or how, how we're going to go about um, launching that. That's going to be a whole new whole new field for us, but we're pretty excited about, about that. Um, and then, you know, like I said, our ultimate vision is for doing global exhibitions. So we're going to start with doing a tour around the UK when we're out of this global pandemic and everything is, you know, calmed down a bit and a bit safer. So yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Alrighty, for the final segment, what message do you want to leave the listeners of the Conservation Tribe? Well, firstly, I simply because of the times we're living in, I'd like to say my heart goes out to everyone who's been affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. And, you know, assuming that your tribe are primarily um, conservationists or passionate about conservation, this can be quite an overwhelming time. So use it to just be gentle to yourselves. Keep going. You know, we're all in it for the long game. And uh, this is going to be the first of many global crises that are going to happen. Like I'm sure for you in Australia, it must be a pretty, you know, the second sort of apocalyptic. Um, it's been a year, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a year. So I'd say for um, lots of people that, you know, I feel like even though it can be kind of overwhelming, I'm, I'm trying to remain hopeful. I feel like this is almost a trial run, a hu an opportunity for humans. We've been given a window to sort of think about our impact on the planet. And so, yeah, I'd say to your tribe, be gentle and be hopeful. And yeah, we're in it for the long game. So um, rest up. <laughs> Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.